Colleagues, Anthony McKay, CEO and President of the National Centre on Education and the Economy. In the seventh of our series of global ed talks today, I am delighted to welcome Michael Stevenson. Michael, wonderful to have you with us. Brilliant to be here. Thanks for asking me. Well, Michael, let me just uh, set the scene for what I hope will be a, a conversation in which we cover the territory of really the emerging learning ecosystem, to use language that some people like and some people don't, but in particular in the context of your work at the OECD. But of course, whilst your current position uh, is senior advisor uh, within the Director of Education at OECD, with particular responsibility for the future roadmap for PISA, which we will return to, you're also working with NCE on a joint project with OECD, which we have called High Performing Systems for Tomorrow. So we'll come back to that. But you've had a history of being engaged in what I see as the emergence now of a very interesting time in the nature of our learning system, to use that kind of language. Uh, of course, earlier in your career, you headed up almost the division of learning for the BBC as a broadcaster and producer. Uh, you then moved into a very senior position as a bureaucrat within the Department of Education and Skills in England. And of course, had further experience as Vice President of Education for Cisco. This has been a pretty remarkable career in which you have been engaged in all areas of education, the politics of education, certainly in international agencies work where you are seriously located now, but also connected to the world of business and also into the area of not-for-profits and a range of other international bodies. So you bring a particular experience and expertise to what I might begin by asking you, the future of learning. If you had to capture how you see the forces emerging at the moment around our education systems, how would you do so? Certainly in terms of radical change. Uh, I look out and see a whole set of things that we've begun to analyse over the last few years and then some. But those wealth gaps that have become so prevalent in recent years, chronic concerns about the depletion of our planetary resources, uh, social fragmentation, driven by all of these extraordinary events of recent years, poverty and war amongst them. And now I suppose the technology dimension, this sense that we all live in digital bubbles and have maybe stopped listening quite so well to one another, um, but are talking to people like us about the things that we share. These are remarkable forces. And it raises a question of, how education should respond. How does education develop a generation to cope with those and other problems? Um, I must say, I think we should respond, but in a very hard-headed way. Um, I've sometimes thought, and maybe I've been one of them, that education is for optimists. Mm -hmm. um, education is for those who believe not in the perfectibility of men and women, nevertheless, uh, that it really is possible and kind of a moral imperative to help them forward just as much as possible. And I just wonder whether it isn't a moment 
to temper that proper optimism with even pessimism. I mean, I was struck last week uh, looking in the papers in Britain uh, by a piece written by David Alusiger, uh, who, like me, a uh, former BBC person, he's a, a broadcaster uh, about British history. And he, was, he began a little piece in one of the papers by talking about how you bring to a conclusion a good BBC history documentary. And uh, I, I just made a note of it because I thought it was interesting. He said, the classic formulation is something along the lines of, Britain and her institutions are remarkably adaptable. The nation survived two world wars, endured the loss of empire. Well, surely we, cope, we will cope with whatever the future has in store. Roll credits, press send, everyone down the pub. Um, but, he goes on to say, Brexit, the rise of populism, the constitutional crisis in which we are utterly ensnared, undermines that blithe optimism. Now is not the time for upbeat endings. It's a moment to make the case for an ever unpopular and always controversial sentiment, pessimism. And I am interested in how we balance our optimism with a cold look at the forces in play in our world as we develop an educational future for our children. Let me just be clear here, therefore, that we will, whatever the balance is between optimism and pessimism, Right now, we need a learning system that's going to be adequate to the kind of forces that you've articulated. It'll need to be fit for purpose. Can I be clear about what you see as being the purpose? In amongst those competing forces, the, the purpose of our education system, our learning system is? Well, I think we can't use abstract nouns right now, not therefore this direction for an economy, that direction for a society. All of those, I think, are vital spin-offs of a focus for education on the person. Uh, we're looking to empower people to thrive, be it in work, in life, in their citizenship dimension, um, and to thrive by taking responsibility, not just to know the traditional purpose of education, but to do, to act, to make a difference individually and with others. That's how I would position what we're educating people for. So therefore, that translates into what we would see as being successful education systems. And here, I want to take you into the current work. You are leading work on a future roadmap for PISA. Just say a word about what that means, because those who are at this moment joining us will have a view about PISA, the purpose of it, how it has actually defined current success. And you're talking about the future. Help us to understand what that potential future roadmap might look like and why. Well, PISA is 20 years old. Um, it was in 2000 that policymakers from around the world came together and said, we would like some data that allows us to think about the comparative quality and, effic and efficiency of our education systems. And they chose to do it by assessing 15-year-old students every three years in science, maths, and reading. We now have seven cycles of that data. And it's been a way in which uh, policymakers could uh, both 
look at the excellence of student outcomes and also close gaps, level a playing field, mm -hmm. make sure that as many people as possible made it through and thrived. Um, all of that remains important and no one will want to kiss goodbye to the amazing trend data that's been built up and has guided and does guide education systems around the world. But every successful entity has to look around itself and understand how its environment is changing. And we have an opportunity now, as we do every 10 years in the PISA story, to think forward over two perspectives. One is the shorter term, um, not that shorter term, the 2020s. Um, how could PISA increase its value to policymakers and others? How could um, PISA uh, uh, respond to emergent changes in the landscape, the bigger landscape, the world changing, what we've just been talking about? But I think you know, there is a, a trajectory beyond there um, as we see artificial intelligence coming in, biotech. We have to think, is there approaching us in the middle of this century an inflection in human history which will ask huge questions about what education is for and how it should be done? And that is the backdrop, that two-phase backdrop for thinking through the future of the survey, which is an important survey in that it shapes not just the way in which young people are assessed, but also what they are assessed in, yes. what PISA chooses to assess people in, is definitive for countries around the world. Now, I've heard you say that whilst PISA has already innovated in ways where innovative domains have been introduced alongside the key measures, that problem solving, global competence, now uh, looking at critical creative thinking, that has been an indication that there are new emerging competencies, some would say competencies that have been with us forever, but they're brought into sharp relief. And yet, the current testing regime, in effect, keeps them at the margin. Are we talking about now the opportunity of a future roadmap for PISA, which brings many of those competencies, if I can use that shorthand language, into the centre, that these are the things that we are looking for in terms of indicators of success of education systems? Well, in the end, that will be a question for the countries and economies that co-own PISA. Right. 80 of them today, potentially up to 100 before very long. But many, many of those countries, if you, ask them, if you ask them what's important in a child's development, will certainly talk about just the things that you've been talking about, from creative thinking to um, cultural sensitivity to others. Yes. So the question becomes, well, how important are those things? Because would you get to a point where, in some way, you wanted to put them at the centre of the PISA survey, as opposed to where they are at the moment, which is a supporting role? Yes. If countries did want to go in that direction, they'd have to strike an appropriate balance between um, the subjects, the literacies that we have traditionally assessed and all the trend data that has been created. The balance between that trend data and making sure that what we assess young people in is relevant and innovative. They'd have to be comfortable with that balance. And then there'd be an option. Um, some say you can take those transversal skills and assess how young people are doing in them by seeing how they approach 
science, mathematics and literacy. Others say, no, they would need a much greater focus in their own right and you would need to develop methods for assessment which get right to the heart of how far young people do have those competencies. So all of those issues, I think, are in play and that in itself, I think, is a significant message. Now, you are consulting on this right now. This is going to be a period of time in which your future roadmap is appropriately negotiated, as you say, with the owners. Let me take you forward, because clearly that will unfold over the next couple of years. But let me take you into the territory where OECD and NCE are jointly now bringing together a number of countries that are high performing on the current PISA metrics. The reason for doing so is certainly in order to share how we can optimise the learning in the current paradigm, to use that language. But it's equally about how do we think about designing a learning system for the future. And that is absolutely the conversation we've had on this series of Global Ed Talks. Many of our guests have been in the business of both reforming and transforming. So if I can put you into that space, thinking about what effectively will be the transition from our current learning system into what ultimately would be a redesign of our learning system. What are the considerations that you're bringing to bear? What are you thinking about as we attempt to more adequately respond through our learning system to the very forces that you outlined at the beginning of this conversation? Well, the OECD work with NCEE um, has chosen as its focus artificial intelligence and related technologies and biotech. Um, so quite a small slither of human experience, but if you're not ambitious, what are you? Um, and I, I, I suppose um, there are four major dimensions of that work that I think could impact on education at large and PISA in particular. Um, the one we're familiar with is what will happen when AI comes into the teaching and learning process when our children maybe have a personal AI uh, that selects for them just the learning experience that best suits their needs and disposition and maybe assesses them uh, by stealth in real time, aggregating the data. We sort of get that, though it's not here yet and we need to think very hard about the conditions in which it comes. But think of three other things that surely matter. What is the impact of AI on our economies, on our societies, and on individual lives? We know the economic analysis that says today's job scene might be transformed. Yes. The jobs we do today aren't here. We can also see that what AI might do is transform decision-making. It might be intelligent machines that figure out how you ought to vote given the way you've expressed yourself all your life, or how I ought to um, make consumer choices, what I buy, what I wear, um, where I go, on the basis of my known choices in the past. In other words, decision-making and human reason, traditionally the very core of human identity, certainly since the Enlightenment, got underway 250 years ago, is moved to the edge. Reason is dethroned and given to something else. If that doesn't have uh, uh, a meaning for education and for educators, what does? But two other things. Um, what should people learn in an AI world? 
Some say computational logic, and that must make sense. Others say, well, you know, it's going to be a time for history and politics and ethics to drive decision making. We can't just leave it to the machines. Others again say, well, maybe we've just spent too long talking about cognitive intelligence. What about other intelligences that machines can't do? Could be social intelligence, could be various forms of meta-intelligence. And finally, what about AI and the provision of public education? Could AI bring us to the point where the children of wealthier parents are given the most fantastic AI-rich education mm. and the rest aren't? Or flip that, could the children of wealthier parents be given a traditional teacher-rich experience with other children palmed off with a sort of childcare AI that keeps them happy and occupied? And it's interesting to see some of the countries who are working with you and us beginning to think about remarkable ways through the middle. Um, it could be Finland, or indeed it could be Estonia. They're entrepreneurs already saying, this is a chance for us to move bureaucrats, and actually maybe teachers, right out of the education process. We'll just give our kids uh, uh, a user ID, a few rules about who gets what data, and will welcome in the commercial sector and ask them to develop their apps for teaching, learning, and assessment. So we're already seeing remarkable responses to these issues. But my view, put these various dimensions of the AI question together, and you've got an extraordinary transformative force to which education must respond. Final question. Handling this conversation, we could have this dialogue, these issues, being discussed and debated, think about a future at a global level. It's happening. But we are also having this conversation at the level of communities, in families, in homes, mm. amongst the teaching profession. Mm. How do we, in a way that you and I have discussed on a previous occasion, hold a split screen? There is work to be done to improve the current system. There is work to be done to transition to a more powerful learning system that's going to be able to respond to the very forces that you're talking about and for us to be making informed decisions about the way in which we want to redesign that learning system, not have some new learning system just visited upon us. How are you thinking about conducting that conversation at multiple levels? Because mm. you're at multiple levels as we have this dialogue. When you and I first started talking about split screen, um, think about the here and now at the same time as thinking about the far future. That was a conversation for a small number of people, most of them running education systems, and they would crowd into some hotel uh, room somewhere and have the private conversation. Um, I think it's as important as ever to have split screens, but it can no longer be a private conversation. Tops down. It has to be for everybody. Um, without scaring the horses. I mean, how many of us actually can cope with that multidimensional conversation all the time? But we've certainly taken that principle into this consideration about the future of PISA. And we will take our time, we will take two or three years, and we will bring in the voices of those who care about the future of education. So of course, system leaders, um, people who lead great national systems, be they great or, or be they still emerging. But teachers, yes. parents, employers, and students. And we are looking for ways in which in national settings 
virtually international conversations, everyone can take a view about what a child should study for the future, how that child should be assessed, um, and other key issues like what we do with the information once we've got it. So it is a moment in time for thinking the big thoughts, the comprehensive thoughts, and involving everybody in the conversation. And our task is to create those opportunities for all who want to take part. Well, Michael, let me say this in thanking you. It's, it's great to have a partnership in which both OECD and NCE are joined on precisely that agenda. Thank you for being with us. Thank you.